everybody. I am Mark Raven, the VP of Improvement and Innovation Services for Kinexus. I'd like to welcome you to episode 16 of Ask Us Anything. Hello, and I'm Greg Jacobson. I'm the CEO and co-founder. And Mark, I am even more excited about this Ask Us Anything than the prior one. Why is that? And I don't I know. know. The, the, questions keep, the questions keep rolling in, one. And two, we had our first time where one of the questions actually came from um, one of the team members here at Kinexus, and uh, it was a great question. So I'm just, I'm just excited all around. All right, well, good, well, good. So we are going to talk a lot about culture change, lean, continuous improvement, leadership, things like that. Um, we always, you know, there, there are questions in the anything realm of Ask Us Anything. It's college football season. Um, Greg, do you have... Uh, a, co a favorite college football team. You're in Austin, is it UT? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, you know, it's interesting. I, if I had to answer what my favorite college football team is, it'd probably be the San Antonio Spurs. I mean, that would, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I don't know. What, what about you, Mark? <laughs> the uh, Western Wildcats, which is my, uh, my alma mater and my favorite team. They are only three and three this season, but I hope they're going to turn things around. Now, you, you went to uh, undergrad Wash U, right? Wash U. Division three football team? Uh, you know, it's uh, – they. I believe they do. I sadly never attended a football game or I don't even think a sporting event during my four years there. Um, academics and having fun was far more um, focused on – although the, the female volleyball team apparently is a powerhouse and – wins national championships there all the time. All right. Well, so I'm sure there's a lot of uh, leadership and a strong culture there in that program. So let's go ahead and get into, there's a couple questions I'm going to just combine. Um, okay. Denise, Chuck, and uh, Tatanisha asked a couple of questions. How do you integrate the culture in a change-resistant environment? Uh, what are some best practices for shifting the culture in an organization? And then Chuck asks, how do you deal with culture change? You know, because lean um, is a new way of doing business. People have to change their ways to become process people, problem solvers. Top management has to come out from behind their desks to work with people. And this is a big paradigm shift in any organization. Culture change must be addressed before any lean tools can be used uh, effectively. So there's a lot we can kind of unravel there. What are your first thoughts, Greg, on, on uh, let's say resistance to change. Yeah, well, I, I just the, the I mean, there's a lot of sentences here. The one that just jumped out at me was, "How do you deal with culture change?" And I would say, hopefully, well, I, you know, hopefully I deal with it well. But I, I know that that's not what I was really asking. Um, you know, I think what we what we oftentimes think of is that culture is something that you can. Um, build like a building, you know, oh, I'm going to go get some two by fours and this and that. And then all of a sudden we're going to have the culture, right? But what, what we, what we need to remember is that culture is just a manifestations of all the behaviors of the people in the organization, right? So that you, you can't, it, it's an illogical sentence to say, well, we, we're not going to start improving until we have a better culture. Well, no, actually the way you develop a continuous improvement culture is by doing the action of improving. So, I mean, that's what, what jumps out in my mind right off the bat. I don't know, Mark, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, something I've been writing about, I, I talked about it in one of our Kinexus webinars, 
this idea of you know this label that I'm kind of uncomfortable with. You know, people say, oh, you know, others are being resistant to change. Um, I, I think the first thing we need to do as leaders is to ask why. Why are people being resistant? Often there are good reasons. They have questions. They're they're not being engaged. Um, I, I've never heard anyone say uh, that others are resistant to improvement, right? So a lot of times people are resistant to a change because they don't think it's going to be an improvement. So I think one way to try to bring the culture around, I try to encourage leaders, when you're sensing resistance, don't stop engaging with that person and, and write them off. That's when you need to really engage more deeply with the person. And, and I think it's not just a matter of telling them why they should change, but it, it's got to be more of, uh, of an exchange, uh, listening, uh, and, and, and trying to bring people along. And it's the last point I'll make on this is uh, I've been studying um, psychology. Um, all right, but um, I was saying you know, motivational interviewing, they point out the idea that even when uh, change is positive, it is a natural step in the change process to go through a phase of resistance. And I think that's all the more reason to help people through that instead of just labeling them as being bad. I think the more resistance that you're feeling or sensing, probably means that you need to do more listening. I mean, that was the word that came out um, in all this, all the words you were saying to me is, is listening because the more that you can understand um, the persona, the place, just the experience of the frontline worker, the more you will be grounded in a similar base to then start working from that journey. Right? There's one thing to say, you know, hey, I'm going to pull you along or you know, worse, I'm going to whip you from behind to get you to move. And another thing is I'm going to join you arm in arm. And then when you're ready to walk, I'll be here ready to walk with you. And so I think there's a lot of, of um, resistance when people feel like they're being changed or being told they need to change. Right. Yeah. And, and the motivational, go ahead. Go ahead. A motivational interviewing would encourage us to draw out from people what their motivations are for change. So I, you know, I think it's good when I think people move along. One level is, you know, we're telling people what to do, and then they're resistant. And I think there's another level where people say, well, we should explain the why. But I think even better, that, uh, even better is sort of trying to draw out from people what their motivations are. And if you know, if their motivations are wholly unaligned with the organization, I would say that that's a leadership challenge. Um, you know, back to, I think, you know, what Chuck and Tatnisha was asking, um, yeah, I think culture change in a lot of ways starts at the top of executives modeling behaviors that they want to see in the culture. So I think Chuck is right. You know, they need to get out of their um, offices, get out of conference rooms. You know, I, I think to your point a minute ago, I think, you know, we can use, uh, we can start improving. We can use lean tools without the culture going, you know, from here to here. Um, but I think, you know, there is a risk that if the culture doesn't progress, the tools will lose effectiveness. Uh, continuous improvement um, momentum uh, would be lost without, um, you know, kind of initial steps leading to broader culture change. What, what, what do you think on that? There, there's another word that comes to mind as we're talking through this. To me, it's trust. And if you are a frontline worker and you don't trust your leadership, it uh, it's going to create a environment of uh, that's going to become really difficult to get anything done. So I think it's really important for leadership to be as 
transparent as humanly possible. I don't know why leadership would want to hide anything at all, but um, the, the more transparent you can be, the the more someone's going to trust you and understand your motivations are coming from a good place. And I think um, I heard a, a really great, great quote recently. Shingo apparently said that the order of importance for improvement is um, better, easier, faster, cheaper in that order, right? Um, and so I, I think that that speaks to speaks volumes because really the first orders of importance for improvement are all centered around the worker. And then when you have kind of established that and um, then you can kind of really get people to start moving with change. And what's interesting is with the data that we see in Kinexus, if you're just doing truly bottom up improvements and you're not telling what people should be improving on, you're not making it thematic in any way, almost invariably um, staff satisfaction is one of the highest categories of improvements that come in. Then as time goes on, you start getting into kind of quality, safety, and cost, which I, I find that to be really interesting, that just kind of the natural, natural order of selection of things um, lets that happen. And, and that won't happen unless you truly come from a, a good place as a leader, a proper place, and uh, people will see right through you if you have ulterior motives on trying to change people versus you know, trying to create a culture or at least allow a culture to happen. Maybe, maybe that's the better way to say it. Yeah, and, and you know, I think trust is built through working on safety. Leaders focusing on the fundamentals, the things that matter to staff is really important. Um, you know, in talking about resistance to change, there's another Shingo quote I was reminded of recently, um, Shigeo Shingo, um, uh, the late Shigeo Shingo, who is considered one of the creators of the Toyota production system, said 90% of resistance is cautionary. And I, I think that when, when employees are being cautious, that's all the more reason for leaders um, to continue the engagement rather than saying you're bad. But I do think there is a role for leaders to, and, and I, don't, I don't know a better word, maybe Mark, you have a better word for this, but sometimes I call myself the agitator. And I'm not agitating to kind of create, you know, chaos and, and meanness. What I'm doing, I feel like sometimes I get I get brought in, let's say, on a marketing team or on a sales team or a CE team, and I just want to like kind of stir things up to to say, hey, there are no assumptions that we need to have here. Have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? Just because sometimes when someone says something that's quote stupid, if you will, even though I'm, I'm heavily putting that into quotes, it ends up kind of putting a different framing on something that you hadn't thought of before. Like, oh, I, I didn't even think about um, that in that way. And all of a sudden, sometimes when you turn the corner of the building, you're like, oh, I didn't realize that. That's right. Oh, and that was just a couple of feet away, but you couldn't get there until someone said something different. So I do think there's a role for um, the agitator. And you can see that with uh, Paul Akers. I mean, he, he is like in your face and he's, you know, kind of crazy and this and that. But what he's really doing is he's kind of, agitating status quo to kind of like say, hey, what, what can we do and what can we filter out that's better? I, I would say Paul is energetic, how's that? <laughs> quite, quite. Yeah. He had this, I saw this video, he's literally going around on one of those razor things that like your kids go around in because he's got to get from point A to point B quicker. I was like, that's a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, you, let's you know, segue, you mentioned um, transparency. And we had a question uh, from Andrew who asked, is it okay for a leader to apologize? Is it taken as a sign of weakness? So I'll, I'll answer it simply and say, yes, it's okay 
for a leader to apologize. And, and no, I, I don't think it's taken as a sign of weakness. I mean, there, there is, shall we say, sort of an older corporate style that sometimes bleeds into politics of saying, you know, I cannot ever admit being wrong uh, or making a mistake. And, and, and I think that just causes so many problems. Um, you know, I blogged about um, the idea years ago that it actually takes great strength and confidence for a leader uh, to be humble and to listen to others and to admit a mistake. I, I think there's real strength in that. And I think employees will quickly see through, um, you know, false bravado or uh, a leader who can't ever admit um, being wrong or, or can't ever find a reason to apologize. What, what, what do you think? I mean, I'm curious, in the medical realm, even. Yeah, no, I think that this is a, it's a great question. I, I, I think there was some intent behind the question because I think it's obvious that yes, I think people, when they apologize, um, they're they're more likable because they're they're more of a human versus you know attempting to be some kind of demigod or something along those lines. Um, I, I will, and really just to be contrary, I, I will throw out a, a, a time when I uh, being the agitator. I think that it, it it probably is a sign of weakness. I think, for example. Um, someone that, you know, um, let's say inappropriately sexes or texts with the sexing thing. I don't know how they call that thing. It just does it over and over and over, but keeps apologizing afterwards. You're kind of like, hey, you know, uh, that is actually a sign of weakness. And I, I can't remember the politician or whatever that, that has that issue. But I think if you um, you make a mistake, it was a genuine mistake, and, and you, you know, it's not like something that you continually do. And you apologize. That is that is coming from a place of, of profound security and profound strength. And um, and and I think that that's a, a, a great attribute as a leader. Yeah, and you know, you bring it back to workplace. I think if you know, an apology is not to get out of jail free card. If a leader is constantly that's, blaming, that's... a leader is constantly blaming employees and yelling at them for problems, and then apologizes. And then does the same thing again a couple of days later. The apology, uh, you know, there, there needs to be reflection and right. uh, improvement. Um, I, I think, you know, when I've seen leaders trying to change their approaches, and let's say it's a really rare occurrence when they jump to a conclusion or they throw out a solution instead of engaging the team. Um, an apology of, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did there. That you know, and, and I think that's different than the, you know, the, the art of the non-apology, like, I'm sorry if you were offended by that, is less of an apology than right. for blaming the team for that problem. Um, but, you know, I think in, in healthcare, it's interesting when you look at apologies, doctors apologizing when there's an error. Um, a lot of studies have shown that hospitals and doctors who sincerely apologize get sued less often because right. I think people... Uh, realize, you know, we're, we're, we're all human, mistakes happen. I think it's when people are unwilling to admit a problem where it, it starts to spiral. It's, I, I think the idea of, you know, the cover-up is sometimes worse than the crime. The aftermath of uh, a, a simple mistake can, can get people um, more upset if there's not an apology. Yeah, and a, a little unrelated, but you brought up the kind of the medical legal and, and being a physician, I've, I've, taking classes on this, part of orientation sometimes, part of our residency um, was was related to this. And the statistic that I remember the most is just amazing that that um, your 
it all has to do with um, your demeanor and your bedside manner. But um, it, some people are far more likely to be sued or independent of whether or not a action they did could be attributable to a harm versus people that do lots of actions that could be attributable harm, depending on their bedside manner, um, may, may never get sued. It's almost like an eight to one relationship or something crazy to that effect. Like, you know, really egregious acts um, get, get sued on one out of eight times. And then, and then if you look at lawsuits, um, almost eight times more, um, there's really not anything, you know, quote, wrong medically that was done. It was just that the people were kind of vile, um, abrasive, Mm-hmm. not human-esque doctors, and so um, they're able, not they're able, but they end up getting sued a lot more in, in their in their life, um, or in their career, I should say. So they can actually see, almost within the first year of someone um, leaving residency, their kind of lawsuit profile is, is, is very well established, that if, you know, if you go through a couple of years and you're not going to get sued, um, you probably are going to go a long, long time without that most lawsuits, interestingly enough, have to do more with someone's got to pay for a whole bunch of medical bills uh-huh. than anything else, which I, I, I think is interesting as well. And then, um, it, anyway, just we could have literally lectures and lectures and lectures on this as a, as a, um, a separate topic within itself. So. Sure. Maybe you can do a webinar someday. Oh, interesting. We have a little bit more time on a, yeah to plug our Kinex's webinar series, um, the presentation webinars, um, which uh, our next one actually, I'll mention it, um, Thursday, October 26th, um, Jeff Roussel, our VP of sales, is uh, going to be doing um, a webinar. And uh, next week on uh, my blog, I'm going to be publishing a podcast that Jeff and I did because Jeff is, I think, very uniquely positioned um, to talk about trends with lean and continuous improvement because he talks to a lot of organizations and a lot of industries about the things they're struggling with. Um, so that, that I think that podcast, that webinar, um, that more presentation style webinar, uh, hopefully will be of interest to people too. Yeah, so w- what I found interesting and when we realized that Jeff has probably talked to you know more organizations than, than most people in the lean world because if you think about you know, at Kinex, we have over 70 customers now, and you can kind of understand that in order to get one customer, you sometimes have to talk to 10 customers. So, I mean, just in those numbers itself, we estimate that, that Jeff may have had conversations with over 1,000 um, different companies over the last four years. And so it's really interesting to see the patterns and the trends, and I feel like we've, we've really kind of put together a really nice story on kind of the traits and, and the hows and the what's. And so I'm really looking forward to that. The se- separate topic and one that you may not be aware of, but um, I did a separate podcast that we'll get on the Kinexus uh, podcast series, uh, Mark, about with um, my, my good friend and um, a local dermatologist here in Austin, Dr. Colby Evans. And um, Dr. Evans is aside from being a thought leader and uh, very well published and um, uh, um, also an industry leader in, in psoriasis, um, he has gotten very interested in, in drug pricing. And it, it was a fascinating conversation that we'll be um, putting also in a couple part blog series that um, you should definitely check out, Mark. We should be getting that online here in the next couple of weeks. So maybe our next topic should be about malpractice. So Yeah. 
I would encourage people, um, you know, also you, know, you can go to kinexus.com slash podcasts to learn more about that. Um, we've got a question that came from Mark. How do companies get hundreds or thousands of ideas from their employees annually? Um, I, I would say for one, uh, leaders are um, actively engaging employees. They're asking them to point out problems, barriers, opportunities for improvement. They're asking employees what their ideas are that they might like to test. I mean, I think the, the biggest factor I've seen, it's not targets for everyone must do X number of improvements. It's not about incentives. It's about leaders engaging their people, tapping into intrinsic motivation. Back to what Greg mentioned, what you mentioned about Shingo, um, easier, better, faster, cheaper, questions uh, like that. Um, and, and it's really, I think it's just, it's that effort of working with people to help test and implement ideas and then giving recognition more so than rewards. The, the more you help follow that pattern, the more that culture is going to build. And before you know it, you've got hundreds or thousands of ideas every year. The, if you haven't read Daniel Pink's book, Drive, highly recommend it. It, it gives a, a lot of social science and behavioral kind of cognition on uh, intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation and, and where all this comes from. And um, there's a, a, a great amount of knowledge you will get from that book that you can apply in a environment where you're doing continuous improvement. Um, number two is all companies are essentially made of humans. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so, so we're all kind of the same stock, if you will. Now, granted, I, I get it. Some companies will be able to um, get higher performing humans versus versus not. But but if, if you look at the type of companies that are practicing continue the cultures of continuous improvement that are that are what we would consider really great practitioners of lean are on a great journey, they're all over the place. You can't say, well, they're all five, eight, and this, and this, and this. I mean, they are every shape and size, every industry, in every country, and um, it, it it just really it really shows that. I mean, this is you're you're tapping into some really core human instincts when yeah. you start engaging in these practices. So there's nothing magical about it. It's it, the, the issue is, and, and the reason why it's so hard is because it's, you have to be disciplined. Leaders right. can't just say one time on January 1st, we want your ideas for the year. They have to ask it on January 1st and January 2nd and January every single day. It just has to be part part of the fabric of what they do. And when it starts becoming like that, you all of a sudden you, you're going to see a just a huge amount of, of ideas come through from your frontline staff. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Um, let's get in uh, another question or two here. Um, Diane asked, uh, what's the best way to get a job in the process improvement Kaizen um, fields? Um, so I, I think there, there could be a lot of questions behind the question here, so I'll, I'll try to answer something that might be helpful. Um, you know, I think one path, uh, so I get a version of this question a lot. I'm involved uh, with lean in a hospital. And so then, you know, there's, there's two paths or questions there. One is you've got people... Uh, in healthcare who have no experience with lean. And a lot of times my advice to them is even if they have to switch organizations, let's say if they're a nurse 
they might not be able to immediately jump into a process improvement role someplace else, but maybe they can take their clinical experience to an organization that has a pre-existing lean culture program, whatever you would call it, get involved in improvement projects, get some sort of formal training or certification if the organization does it, and then use that as a springboard into uh, a full-time role. And I, I think that the, 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 the most challenging way, you know, to get a, or probably the least effective way would be just, you know, go and get on, I, there's nothing wrong with online education, but going and, and getting an online certification might not be uh, enough to get a job. So I, I think at some point it's a, a question of how to get a foot in the door, um, getting getting some experience. And then there's, you know, the people with a lot of lean experience trying to get into healthcare um, to do lean work in healthcare. You know, sadly, I see organizations still that have jobs posted, job posted that say healthcare experience required. Mm. When I think, you know, they, they could find uh, people from the outside who would bring a fresh perspective and be um, very effective. So, I mean, I think in a nutshell, my answer to Diane would be, you know, reading, learning, education, things like that are important, but at some point, you've got to try to position yourself where you can um, get some experience, uh, learn by doing, and, and maybe turn that into a full-time role. That's crazy that these, that these job postings say healthcare experience required, right? As, as if it's, even it says often it says required. Right. I mean, to, to think it's like I, I'm, you're hiring for a process improvement type of role. You're not. I would get it if it's like you're looking for a surgeon. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, not okay. a surgeon. You know, um, but uh, but it'd be almost be like telling a surgeon, "Oh, well, process improvement experience required." Huh? I mean, your improvement is improvement, so that's that's nuts to to that that would be a requirement. Yeah. Um, all right. So let me kind of wrap up. We had one other question here. Um, what's the next conference that you plan on attending? Um, Greg, you've got one. You, you made reference earlier to seeing Paul Akers. Maybe you can talk about that and what yes. you're going through. So I just came back from AME. It was in Boston. It was really great. We uh, we were vendors there. This year we're um, exploring, um, having booths at different places. We've been um, attending the, the Lean Healthcare Summit every year that's usually in June, and we're, we're branching out as we're getting bigger. We have a bigger budget to do these things and it was lots of fun getting exposed to I mean, a lot of people know about us um, through our online presence obviously the people that are on this call know about us but it was just fun exposing um, other companies that that aren't online um, learning about this stuff to what we were doing the keynotes were were fantastic and um, one of those was Paul Akers and he was uh, he was just a really dynamic speaker and uh, hearing his hearing his journey I think is a great journey because he really started from a place where um, he had a great company. Um, he, it wasn't the story of he had a failing company and and then found Lean and got it on the right track, but he had a great company that was it was super successful and found Lean and, and made an even better company. And so it, it just really shows that these principles are truly a, a quest for kind of always pursuing excellence. That excellence is unattainable and it's just the act of the pursuit that um, brings us satisfaction in what we're doing. And so 
Um, we did that last week, and this week, um, super fun, we are going to the, the Lean Construction Institute's conference out in Anaheim, which we'll have a booth at as well. Um, who knew, but we have a, a whole bunch of construction companies that are using Kinexus because guess what? They want to improve as well. So what about you, Mark? Yeah. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be attending uh, an event called Lean Startup Week. I'm going to have an opportunity to uh, give a presentation about managing metrics, reacting or not overreacting to variation in metrics. That's a, a topic I've done webinars uh, for Kinexus uh, on, on before. Um, but it's called the Lean Startup Conference. But the thing that's interesting is that over the years, there are more and more people from large companies that are trying to learn how to be more innovative, more entrepreneurial. Um, Eric's new book that's just out today, I had a chance to read it in advance. It's outstanding. It's called The Startup Way. So I would definitely recommend that book for people, I think, you know, in large companies. Uh, there are stories in this book from GE, Toyota, large software companies that um, are, are trying to make entrepreneurship a process and a function. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a really interesting frontier. A lot of connections to continuous improvement and you know, kind of corporate innovation on, on that scale. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that conference. It's going to be November 2nd and 3rd in San Francisco. What's interesting, Mark, is I think I don't think if you would have asked me five years ago, would you recommend for all improvement, passion, people that are passionate about improvement to make sure they go to a conference um, every year? I would have thought very, that that was a very important thing. But now that I've been doing this, um, I've actually gone to these conferences. I, I really think that it's critical to, to get out of your Gemba, if you will, and go meet people that have different Gembas cross-pollinate ideas. Do I think you need to go to one every you know, other week like you do? No. I mean, you have a different role, Mark, than, than most people. But, um, but certainly, if you aren't going to a conference, pick some conference to go to and um, learn some stuff and be exposed to um, some areas that you hadn't. And that'll only make you more enriching and, and, and it just gives you so much energy. And so um, next year here at Kinexus, we're going to be making sure that um, all of our employees are, are either going to Gemba, uh, one of our customers, um, or they're, they're going to a, a conference. So I think that's a, a really great thing. And if you don't have budget for it, you should go secure that now. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I, I agree with you. That's really uh, important. And uh, one thing I'll mention about uh, the Lean Startup Week event, if you go to their website, uh, leanstartup.co, they have a number of live video feed locations around the world. I've, I've done this before uh, in Dallas, before I ever went and attended the event in person. Uh, it's, it's free. Um, you've got to go, you know, they set up locations where there's going to be a number of people there. So it's not just you at your computer watching presentations. They're encouraging people to get together in at least small groups, watch the content, network and talk during the breaks. Um, so I would encourage people to go take a look at that. I think it's something very innovative um, that, that I wish for conferences. Great. Um, thank, thank you, Mark. I know we're having some audio um, connection issues, but I cannot believe that 30 minutes have gone by. We already, for our next one, we'll have the first couple questions, and we can't wait to gather more. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Mark, as well. So um, I always like to say there's no better day than today to uh, improve. So get out there and can 
practice continuous improvement.